0: They saw it as like um like a punishment for like what they saw as immoral behavior. So Exactly. uh, They I, I remember reading um an article about it where they said, quote, like quote, God's gift to gays As result of the outbreak, your city or entire region may be endangered by a lethal agent. If conditions at your location make this a possibility, you need to consider staying in place until the threat has subsided or blown over.
1: Hey everybody and welcome back to Viral Load Podcast. The disease podcast for this diseased
0: world. As always, I'm Andy Peebo. And I'm Brett Bales. Bringing you the hard truths this time. The origins of HIV, the, um, not the OG pandemic, but, uh, one of the uh, kind of old guard, you know, yeah, showing the, for sure, showing the upstarts, the COVID 19s of the world, what's up, um, still rampaging around. So that's where we're going to cover today because it's, um, quite interesting. There is some history involved, there is some, uh, colonialism. It's all kind of a mishmash of a perfect soup that results in this uh, virus rampaging its way through humans. Uh, but we're also going to talk about some of the fun myths, conspiracy theories and, and whatnot, because that is a thing. Every time there's a pandemic or epidemic or, or anything, uh, there's usually a whole kind of treasure trove of weird uh, thoughts. And just like with COVID, uh, HIV is no exception. People have a lot of strange ideas about uh, where this thing came from. So uh, we're going to kind of compare and contrast some of the the myths and the whatnot to what science uh, has told us so far about the origins of this thing. So let's just jump in. And I don't think we probably have to uh, introduce the concept of HIV-AIDS to anyone. It seems like it's a fairly well-known thing. But um, Mm -hmm. just for uh, posterity's sake, let's say uh, that HIV-AIDS, HIV is a uh, virus that causes the disease AIDS, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. It has become one of the most... Uh, devastating infectious diseases in human history. It is a retrovirus, so it um, dresses in real throwback. Dresses in bell bottoms and uh, has an afro. Um, no, it's uh, actually a type of virus. That's what HIV is. HIV type one uh, was ultimately found to be the causative agent of AIDS. Retroviruses are, are just a type of virus um, that in the case of the retrovirus, they use RNA as their genetic material to um, do their thing with host cells uh, as opposed to DNA. So um, that's, that's just an interesting tidbit. But AIDS is uh, not technically like a single disease. It's a collection of different infections and malignancies that will occur uh, as a result of the HIV infection. So basically, the virus weakens your immune system. It destroys your lymphocytes, uh, which is a type of white blood cell that helps you to ward off infection. So your white blood cell numbers go way down. You basically don't have a functioning immune system. And people generally die from infections that normal, healthy uh, immune systems would be able to handle. And uh, it is spread through close contact. Um, This is going to become important when we dive into the origins. 80% of adults acquire the HIV-1 virus through uh, exposure uh, to infected mucosal surfaces. So AIDS is a primarily sexually transmitted disease, but it's also spread from Uh, blood transfusions, and other um, kind of direct exchanges of bodily fluids. And it has Mm -hmm. uh, really um, kind of rocked the human population. 85.6 million people have become infected with HIV. That estimate goes as high as 113 million. And about 40.4 million, give or take, um, people have died from AIDS-related illnesses since the start of the pandemic. So um, it has has done a lot of damage. It's also an interesting disease because it's kind of changed shape in a way, uh, how people kind of perceive it and how uh, with the advent of medications and treatments, it's kind of transitioned from this like very uh, quick death sentence essentially with like a nearly 100% fatality rate without any treatment to uh, something that could be managed as more of like a chronic disease with medications and uh, whatnot. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's almost like a tale of two diseases, but uh, what we have until recently, relatively recently not understood is where this virus ultimately came from. So, This has been a debate among scientists, politicians, and, of course, the the conspiracy theorists of the world uh, have been debating for years where AIDS actually began. Um, Can we kind of reverse engineer the pandemic and find the source or as close to it as possible? And so before we get into the science... uh, Andy fell down the rabbit hole of HIV conspiracy theories, Um, Mm -hmm. so I think it's important that we uh, cover these first, because they're also uh, entertaining, as they are frustrating.
1: Yeah, Uh, there was no shortage. Uh, I'll just hit some high point ones here, and ones that have been shared at an alarming rate. Uh, one of the things when I try to do these deep dives, I try to look at like what are the most ridiculous uh sites and resources I can find. And also like who has the biggest audience in those and how much potential like fallout is there from these individuals having such a big platform? Um so, obviously, uh, they're, the biggest one, I think, would be Sex with Monkeys. I think I remember that as a child. One of the first, like, rumors that was that's out there. That's what I heard, too. Uh, was yeah, like that was like, yeah. <laughs> that's what all the
0: kids on the playground would be like. You know, oh, sex with yeah, monkeys. Yeah, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, uh, so that one, obviously, uh, comes with the connotation and some racism there. And, like, where the origin came from, like, all just... Uh, hodgepodge into, obviously, uh, somebody might ha- must have had sex with monkeys. Yeah. Uh, instead, um, it's more overly thought, if we're going to go that route, as far as it coming directly from a monkey or uh, a primate, that it was probably for, more likely from bushmeat hunting and chimpanzees who were affected and not actually anybody having sexual intercourse with a monkey. So yeah. uh, that one
0: uh, proved false. Although we're not here to judge. If, yeah, yeah exactly hey you, do, you, 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 you you know love is you, love i guess
1: yeah uh, and so another one uh is god is punishing gay people mm-hmm. that was a huge one uh uh honestly probably cost the lives of millions um who have been infected uh by hiv aids uh, especially in the 80s and early 90s mm-hmm. um where christianity and uh, evangelicalism was like really really big um and uh, really, just kind of allowed people to die off, honestly, uh, because if it was God's will, then you didn't have to care about your neighbor anymore because uh, they were gay. Um, yeah. and, or as the that's how the Catholic Church saw it, anyways, um, and many other religions for that matter. Yeah,
0: they, they saw it as like um, like a punishment for like what they saw as immoral behavior. So exactly, uh, they. I I remember reading. Um, an article about it where they said, quote, like, quote, God's gift to gays, um, as a way of like punishing their, you know, what they mm-hmm. see as immoral, like drug taking, um, homosexuality, etc. Um, and there's like, you know, I think where that comes from is ultimately that, you know, the first recognized cases in the U S were amongst like a, a small group of, uh, homosexual men uh it's of course Mm -hmm. you know expanded to you know include anyone anyone's at risk uh but i think that's kind of like the neck the genesis of it but reagan was the president at the time and was like super slow to do anything Mm -hmm. and a lot of people you know attribute his religious you know kind of right-leaning ways and uh yeah it it costs time and you know, probably resulted in many, uh, deaths that didn't need to happen. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, I do want to give a positive shout out because I always, um, try to look for horrible human beings on the internet because that's my part of the podcast. Uh, I will give a positive shout out to Rick and, uh, I, I think it's Rick and Kat Warren. They're evangelical pastors, which seems like a weird thing for me to give a shout out to right now. Uh, but actually they both published, um, in bigthink.com and like their websites uh like a three to four minute blurbs each about how um it was not god's will to punish the gays uh that in fact like you still need to help everyone regardless of like whether they follow your moral code and blah 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 so it was actually refreshing like i was expecting to like dog on these people real hard and like dunk on them in the episode and they were actually like very wholesome individuals uh whether or not like They've been that their whole life. One of them, Kat actually did state that she spent years actually sitting there thinking that and stated that she actually uh, kind of, you know, looks back on her old self and hates herself for the fact that she didn't help sooner. Mm. Um, And same thing with Rick. He wrote it off as HIV was only... And, you know, a gay community problem and really was rather spend money and time and resources on something like uh, malaria, because malaria has a you know larger impact based on what he was seeing. Um, and he stated he uh, categorically was incorrect later on. So uh, kudos to people figuring out things and growth. You know, that's nice. Nice to see. Um, in a completely turn, different turn of events. Uh, so Nick Cannon, uh, otherwise known, the man with like 19 uh, children all over yeah, the U.S. He does have a lot of kids. Uh, what the hell? That's a lot yeah, of baby so moms. Yeah, so he was in, yeah, he was in an interview uh, on Vlad TV, and this has 5.75 million subscribers on YouTube. Uh, and he stated that HIV is chemical warfare by the government decided to get rid of certain groups. Oh. Um I totally understand uh, the black community's um, distrust in the U.S. government. I don't think that can be overstated. However, he went further to say that there is a cure for this disease because there's a cure for every man-made disease that was made in the lab. Um so yeah, that takes it a bit further, and again, I think that video had hundreds of thousands of views, uh, if not millions, um, on that one. Uh, and he kind of just threw that in as an aside, and the person who was interviewing was just like, "Of course," and they just moved on. Um, so again, uh, almost six million people could you know see that and take that as uh, as the word is law. Um, more interesting. Uh, Back in 2000, uh, so back in the 1999, there was a poll uh, taken. Uh, It was a door-to-door poll, which to me, that sounds ridiculous now. Could you imagine, Mm -hmm. Brett, if every time you tried to do some of your research, you had to go to -to door-to-door? It just seems so foreign now. Uh, But they went door-to-door back in the day and found that 27% of all black Americans believed that HIV was spread by the government to control the black population. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 2005, that same survey was repeated in uh, the same area and expanded further and found that 30% of black men and 20% of black women thought it was established and created by the government. And even further, 55% of the Latino population, when surveyed, thought that the government had created oh God, HIV. Um, yeah, so kind of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and last one I will uh, I will uh, dive into, but I think, Brett, you might be able to talk oh, yeah. a little bit more about the uh, behind-a-pale-horse, you know, um, connection. But uh, one really interesting thing Brett alluded to was some of the first uh, people in the United States who had HIV-AIDS were uh, in the gay population. And there was one guy in particular called Guyton Dugas. Uh, He was a French-Canadian flight attendant. Brett, have you heard of him? Yeah,
0: they... um he became famous because there was like the hypothesis that he was patient zero.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so the interesting part about that is it was actually on a document, which was a a hospital document, which should not have been shared with anybody, but it said patient O on it um, and not zero, but it was the letter O. Uh, But the first time somebody saw that yeah. So the first time somebody saw that it was, you know, unredacted and they thought, Oh, this is, this must be patient zero. They're surmising that this man is patient zero. Um, and so there's an entire documentary actually uh, called killing patient zero, uh, which I, I have not watched yet. I probably will uh, very soon, just cause it was really interesting, but it's basically all about how his life was ruined by being called patient zero. Um, they had connected to him to uh, he basically did, work with the government and officials to try to do basically contact tracing for anybody he could have come in contact with, um, sexually or otherwise, uh, and noted that it was like, you know, a large number of people that he had come in contact with during that time. And so, yeah, uh, ended up being patient zero and, uh, yeah, his life was ultimately ruined by it. Um, and he subsequently died from AIDS. So, um, Yeah, pretty crazy, but uh, go check that out. And then Brett, so I'm kind of familiar with uh, Milton William Cooper, Mm -hmm. just because I know he was kind of a a crazy, crazy guy, Uh, but do you want to, like, lead us into, like, what was, like, what did he say, and what was the correlation there, outside of the fact that he was your, uh, you know, 1990s Joe Rogan?
0: Yeah, he was, like, uh, he, I mean, he was, like, the original, like, Alex Jones, where, he has yeah. this like big following on the, on the radio and he, you know, pushes, he, he has pushed like tons of different conspiracy theories. He's like really kind of into that. Um, and so the the book he published is like pretty well known. Um, it's called, uh, Behold a Pale Horse published in 1991, uh, where he basically, you know, says that AIDS is, uh, Intentionally designed to decrease and control the population of Black, Hispanic, and homosexual um, people. And that is something that uh, I think we can recognize with COVID as well. So it's like, you know, not a new thing. Um, But real quick, uh, on a quick aside, uh, Nick Cannon, 12 kids, uh, six baby mamas. So, um, yeah. should, you know, uh, factor that into the yeah, equation and when deciding whether to believe him or not.
1: Exactly. And by the way, that video that I had uh, alluded to has 123,000 views uh, and, yeah, 2,000 upvotes um, on YouTube. So yeah. uh, people don't seem to hate it, um, you know?
0: Yeah. He's got a lot of kids. He must know what he's talking about. I don't know. But there's no. there's this um there's this other kind of weird phenomenon. I don't know if you came across this in your research and it's um kind of tangentially associated to like conspiracies and myths, but it's a phenomenon called bug chasing where it's okay. it's relatively rare, but it is something that's been a thing where um People will intentionally try to infect themselves with HIV, um, and mm-hmm. it's a it's a weird kind of s- sub community. That um, yeah, it's uh, there's a really good Rolling Stone article about it if you want to learn more called "Bug Chasers: The Men Who Long to Be HIV Positive," and that's um, that's ins- crazy. That is the wildest thing.
1: I uh, I loosely remember hearing some sort of, like, special report or something on somebody who had, like, self-reported that they were a bug chaser. Uh, And I do know that there are certain diseases people have tried to get um, to try to disprove them or otherwise, Uh, but that is wild.
0: Yeah, I forget, like, what the motivation was, um, but uh, part of it was, like, a kind of fetish-type thing. I I don't know. Uh, I don't think it was, like, a... like intended to be suicidal, like a suicidal cult or anything. Um, I think they just had like Mm -hmm. weird perceptions about like HIV positive people. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to get like in the mind of of someone that's trying to like get HIV. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, uh, yeah, I don't want to be in that mind. So I'll just watch from afar. But equally
0: as kind of um, crazy is the still persistent belief by some that the virus known as hiv doesn't actually cause aids it's um you know understandable at the very beginning of when it was like popping up in the us uh people had first no idea what was causing this this like phenomenon of um people's immune systems being obliterated and there were all types of theories about what could be causing it. Uh, but you know, relatively quickly, it was discovered that it was this, this virus, they called it HIV. Um, and so now that's a pretty well established fact at this point, cause and effect has been kind of quickly established, but there are still those that kind of, uh, push this theory, um, that blame it on like lifestyle factors instead. Like that, there's no proof that HIV causes AIDS. Um, so if it like a, I think a, a pretty famous example uh, is this book by a Nobel Prize-winning chemist. Uh, for any biology nerds, he invented PCR, um, polymerase chain reaction, which amplifies small amounts of DNA. Uh, it basically revolutionized how we. Uh, for example like prosecute uh like homicide cases it is uh you know because of this invention that we can you know match people's dna to a crime scene it's a way of taking a tiny bit of genetic material amplifying it to be able to be studied mm-hmm. i guess so yeah and yeah. Brett
1: the testing the testing for covid one of the one of the uh the test was a PCR test versus Mm -hmm. like a full panel test Mm -hmm. or whatnot. So, I mean, it's, it has so many applications. It's so wild that somebody who had like had such a revolutionary idea also has such a completely backwards thought process on, uh, in the same field. The guy,
0: uh, the guy's name is Kerry Mollis. Um, and he has a lot of interesting opinions about, uh, a lot of different things including that HIV, there's no proof, uh, quote that, um, and this is from his great book. It's actually a really fun read. I recommend it. Uh, It's called Dancing Naked in the Mind Field. And there is a um, shirtless Carrie Mullis holding his surfboard on the cover. And this man won the Nobel Prize, again, in chemistry, um, but also is, um, I would say, batshit insane. So, (laughs) <laughs> quote from his book uh quote no one had ever proven that hiv causes aids this is um this this kind of represents this this whole theory uh which was uh is labeled the deuceburg hypothesis after a uh uc berkeley professor peter deuceburg who kind of popularized this hypothesis um and rather than the hiv virus causing it it was actually non-infectious factors like recreational and pharmaceutical drug use um i don't i don't understand how like with all the research that's been done on this um how they can continue to believe this or um whatever but kerry Mullis is also like a climate change denier fun fact he also Mm -hmm. um credited his invention of PCR to an encounter he had in the woods of Mendocino with a radioactive alien raccoon. So um, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of mind we're working with. I would say a a kind of tortured mind, but an interesting fellow. And again, worth a read um, if if you can handle it.
1: Alrighty. And we're jumping in. So Brett, like, let's, let's cover a little bit deeper. I know you've gone over, uh, some other parts of the conspiracy and like jumping into like the real deal with, uh, with HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. So what's next, what's the next logical step?
0: So, uh, what we've been after is, and it's, it's been this way for every pandemic. I mean, COVID we're, still putting the pieces together about where it comes from. Um, So we want to kind of cover what the science says about its origin. Where did HIV come from? And then how did it become a pandemic? How did it trigger this massive pandemic that has killed so many people? So um, the beginning of the AIDS crisis as we know it, we generally think of it as beginning in like the 1980s and AIDS standing for acquired immune deficiency syndrome was first recognized as a disease in 1981. And this uh, was occurring among an increasing number of young homosexual men succumbing to these uh, unusual opportunistic infections that, you know, just don't happen to people with functioning immune systems. But that's not really the beginning of the story. And I think that's what a lot of people are not aware of, is that um, AIDS actually, or, or HIV AIDS, uh, it, it goes back um, quite a while. And the kind of story of its emergence is pretty interesting. So we're going to get into it. Uh, what we know, though, so far is to date the earliest known case of HIV-1 infection, in human blood is uh, from the sample that was taken in 1959 from a man who died in uh, Kinshasa, in what was then the Belgian Congo. So uh, shortly after the first reports of AIDS in the United States in 1981, the HIV virus, the, the virus itself, was isolated two years later. And the disease was also discovered to be established in heterosexual populations uh, in Central and East Africa as well. And this suggests a much older and, to the point, hidden history of the pandemic in Africa. So we have to kind of start our exploration by understanding the kind of um, mutation of viruses and the uh, cross-species transmission that occurs. So spoiler alert, uh, HIV uh, is a zoonotic disease coming from animals. Oh. That's what those are. So that's a majority of new infectious diseases are uh, from animal origin. They're zoonotic. So we, um, we want to kind of trace the virus back to its animal reservoir population. And what we've found is that the closest kind of relative, quote-unquote, to HIV-1 is a virus called simian immunodeficiency virus. So that's SIV. And this infects wild-living chimpanzees and gorillas in West Central Africa. So it's uh, theorized that likely when chimpanzees first acquired SIV, SIV. That this virus had mm-hmm. to adapt in order to replicate efficiently and spread in its new host, which is you know something that viruses do, and we know that chimpanzees and humans are generally very similar. Um, we have a relatively recent common ancestry, so our our genetic makeup is is quite similar. Um, and considering HIV-1 and HIV-2, uh, I Chose not to go into the deep dive on like all the different subtypes of HIV, but there are, it's not just one type of virus. There's like a whole kind of family of them. Um, But HIV-1 is the big troublemaker. But if we combine HIV-1 and HIV-2, it appears that there have been at least a dozen independent separate transmission events of SIVs to humans. And it's thought that the source of HIV-1 and the subgroup M, which is, again, one of the uh, strains that is causing most of the trouble pandemic-wise, the main form of AIDS virus infecting humans has been traced to a virus infecting the central subspecies of chimpanzees in a remote area in the southeast corner of Cameroon. And so the likeliest route of exposure is a uh, chimpanzee to human transmission via uh, exposure to infected blood and in bodily fluids probably during a uh, butcher butchery of bushmeat and so i think this is what sparked the like whole having sex with monkeys thing um, mm-hmm, is, definitely you know they they took this kind of little kernel of uh, evidence and you know distorted it yeah probably you know racism um homophobia you know just whatever but yeah i do remember hearing that a lot growing up that it was from uh monkey sex
1: yeah and brett we've seen other diseases from bushmeat hunting uh in africa Mm -hmm. as well like this isn't the first isolated instance where they've tried to trace back to um different like rare diseases that have popped up Mm -hmm. uh in the middle of like otherwise um desolate areas they wouldn't have expected yeah uh
0: ebola is a good example of that uh thought to kind Mm -hmm. of spill over as a result of this kind of close contact that occurs between the hunter and its uh ape or monkey prey uh there's gonna usually be some like uh cuts and blood involved in exchange that way so um yeah uh it's it's not just hiv um so, uh, kind of moving along in our journey of discovery, uh, one of the missing pieces, you know, when we're trying to put this whole together is uh, this missing link, which was the immediate ancestor of the virus, the HIV virus. And scientists have actually been able to track the ancestor of HIV uh, to something basically like a zip code in a remote corner of the West African rainforest. And the virus still actually circulates in three small communities of chimpanzees. The chimps mm-hmm. who harbor the uh, ancestor virus live in the forests of southeastern Cameroon on the edge of the uh, pretty vast Congo River uh, Congo River basin. So Cameroonian, that's fun, chimps, got the virus probably many mm-hmm. thousands of years ago by killing and eating uh, monkeys because chimps are surprisingly terrifying and you know oh yeah we'll eat other monkeys and will um mutilate like competitors to like sh- like prove a point or like to, to intimidate and scare they'll like intentionally like go overboard and like overkill so um they're they're pretty scary actually yeah they're terrifying
1: i mean do you remember the the chimp lady like the the lady who was attacked by her friends, Jim. Forget it. And her face, yeah, her face was removed. And uh, fun fact, my friend had his face reconstructed after a horrible fall by the same doctor who did her face oh, transplant. So awesome! Uh, kudos to that doctor over at Brigham and Young Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital out in in Boston. Uh, pretty amazing doctor, but did the first ever uh, facial transplant. Oh, wow. Pretty cool.
0: That is cool. Um, so we know that chimps eat monkeys quite regularly they're omnivores they'll eat whatever kind of like humans Uh, but they're actually fairly carnivorous and so it's not hard to imagine a chimp being bitten while it's attacking another monkey and picking up a virus this way
1: it is interesting though I feel like I don't think of like chimpanzees and primates as like carnivorous Mm -hmm. I feel like I always see them like in the trees and like munching on Mm -hmm. stuff uh, like so, I, I never think of that. So that's that's interesting.
0: Yeah, it is. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of burst your bubble when you really like dig into the behavior of groups of chimps. Um, yeah. So I'll yeah I'll go with I'll stick with orangutans. They're more uh, my
1: mm-hmm. speed. More so, your speed. Yeah.
0: Uh, I mentioned this place, Kinshasa, and this is where we're gonna go next. And this is from evidence uh, that was put together by an international team of scientists uh, who sought to reconstruct the history of the HIV pandemic uh, by using these historical records and DNA samples of the virus that they had dating back to the late 1950s. And this uh, analysis of the genetic material allowed them to draw up uh, basically like a family tree of the virus that uh, traced its ancestry through time, and space so it kind of allows you to uh, visualize the the spread um, and the kind of mutations and changes that occur so using you know fancy pants statistical models uh, they could push the origin further back than the 1950s and they located the origin of the pandemic in 1920s kinshasa so People with HIV in Central Africa at the time did not have specific symptoms that would have been written down in their medical records, so it's it's hard to like um, really get an accurate reflection using data on like symptomatic surveillance Um, because a lot of you know people that were dying of AIDS back then you know that wouldn't have been like noted Um, it you know maybe would would have been blamed on malaria or, or whatever. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole immune deficiency part of things, right? Like if they have this, they're easily taken out by X, whatever that might be.
0: So we, we can't rely on like medical records or, or even like, you know, um, historical accounts of people's illnesses. Um, The virus causes people's immune systems to collapse and that opens the door for all types of infections. So, you know, people dying from AIDS don't just die from, like, one thing, and so that's why it's hard to, like, trace it back this way. So for an epidemic like HIV, we're trying to track it before it was discovered, and genetics is really the only source of information we have. So um, a lot of this is... uh, because of this kind of genetic reconstruction and you can picture a family, like a family tree, like with the branches, you know, branching off. And um, it's, it kind of looks like that.
1: Yeah, Brad. I mean, that's similar to what we saw with like COVID, right? As people were like, Oh, that person didn't die from COVID. It was like, well, they had these other uh, comorbidities that caused them to you know, have a weakened immune system, and so COVID just finished them off. And so, what you know, what do you attribute to like what actually killed them? Well, they wouldn't have died if they didn't have the other disease, but also like if COVID didn't come around, it wouldn't have they wouldn't have died. Yeah. So it's like this back and forth. What do you blame?
0: So researchers, kind of using this genetic approach, have actually been able to hone in on the area in the forest that must have given rise to the virus, based on the data that they have. Um, that is now still spreading globally and was the cause of the AIDS pandemic. And knowing the place as well as the time, the time of origin, make the puzzle pieces fit together. Um, Kinshasa is where scientists first documented uh, a case of HIV, and this was in a Bantu man who participated in a medical study in 1959 his blood was collected and it basically just sat in a freezer until the 1980s when a new AIDS blood test showed it contained HIV-1. And the virus's closest relative was one found circulating today in those Cameroonian chimps that I talked about earlier.
1: How does that, how does that even happen? Like how, like, where does that blood stay? Like it's 21 years later and they're like, you know what? We've got to test this vial. It's just in the back (laughs) of the fridge here. Uh, That, that, that Bantu man, you know, we got his blood a while back and like, let's just check that out again. Mm -hmm. Like, how does that even like, how are they doing that blood and tissue typing to the point where they have enough space? Like like they didn't have anything else going on for the 21 years or they have like a hunch that like, there was something that killed this man that was a little bit different. Like, how does that happen in research? Like who does it?
0: It just got pushed to the back of the refrigerator and like hidden behind like the expired milk and stuff. And
1: yeah, it's, it's it's right there with like the mold that grew penicillin. Like it's like next to each other. Like how did, how did that happen?
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) don't, don't mistake it for the ketchup bottle. Um, blood sample exactly (laughs) uh but probably it was just stored in a, a kind of a deep freeze um and you know lots of samples are stored like that you know over long periods of time and new technologies become available and so you can go back and like you know do research on old samples
1: it's like a rainy wednesday and you're like let's go back to the old stuff you know we're just like hanging here anyways we got some time yeah Let's, let's check it let's out.
0: Let's go look for weird shit in old blood. Sounds like a good yep. Friday night to me. So um, from Kinshasa, southeastern Cameroon, it appears to have somehow made its way to... Uh, or sorry, from southeastern Cameroon, it somehow made its way to Kinshasa, where the pandemic was likely spawned. And mm. here's mm. where it kind of... I think it's really interesting and this is why i think studying infectious diseases and pandemics in general is interesting is because uh it takes like all of these kind of specific pieces to fit together so these separate risk factors to like um all coalesce at a particular time and place and then that is enough to like spark the initial outbreak and what we see in the history of HIV is what's been called a perfect storm of urban change that began in the 1920s in Kinshasa uh, in what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC. And this is what ultimately led to the catastrophic spread of HIV first throughout Africa and then into the bigger wide world. So it's uh, thought that sometime around 1920, a person carried the virus, or a virus, down the Sangha River, uh, which I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not super familiar with. I haven't had the pleasure of uh, swimming down yet. But uh, from Cameroon, this traveled towards the capital of the DRC. The virus was a strain of HIV, and the city, which was then called Leopoldville... And now Kinshasa. Good good call on the change. Leopold Leopoldville. Um just not opened. great. No. It
1: Yeah. <laughs> King
0: Leopold
1: slashville. Yeah. Real real uh, real original.
0: Yeah, that's it, very like Trumpian to like name a city after <laughs> yourself. Um mm-hmm. this uh this perfect soup of conditions that ignited the AIDS epidemic, uh this is where it it occurred this is the city where all of those like separate puzzle pieces came together and um sparked this thing and a big part of this perfect storm was as a result of colonial practices and that's you know you can trace a lot of the problems in africa to like the colonial um past yeah of countries
1: the white men cometh and not so um, good
0: it's yeah, it's, it's never resulted in good things for the indigenous peoples wherever it's happened. Um, yeah. So it's it's thought that 1920s, maybe into the 1930s, HIV got its chance to to make it big, to strike out uh, and, and see the world. And we know that because their viruses, you know, mutate at a constant rate... And that's one of the um, reasons why HIV has been so hard to uh, like like treat um, is that it, it mutates uh, pretty quickly. So uh, medicines that once were working, uh, you know, end up no longer working because the, the virus mutates. So new medicines have to be developed. Um, but because of this mutation rate, scientists can clock how long ago HIV diverged from its Chimpanzee ancestor. So we use the kind of like mutation events of the viruses to construct these like family trees and You know, you can kind of reverse engineer it and The date is actually important because of what was going on in West Africa at that time so the 1920s 1930s the French and the Belgians were hell-bent to extract rubber and ivory and that is a classic story of uh, Africa is just outside of people coming in to extract and, um, you know, use resources and and drain the country of the resources because Africa is is, actually, is very resource rich. Uh, it's a really yeah resource rich um, continent. And that is why the French and the Belgians were interested. They wanted the rubber and the ivory that they could extract. So they, they did what any colonialist will do. They they conscripted workers. That's, I think a nice way of saying they forced Cameroonians in 1954 to build, uh, railways to ship all of their, um, ill gotten gains to the coast. And sound like good people, yeah. So, uh, let's kind of picture a scenario where you have this crew of Cameroonians collecting rubber and they're coming into this village. The so, this is going to sound kind of strange because it is, but the routine practice was. To kill a few people first, as like an example, or to take their children hostage, and to kill them if the rubber didn't come in. So these patrols were avoided. Um, if you saw a rubber collecting crew coming, you know they're gonna, you know, gonna just start killing people to like just scare everyone. Uh, so people were afraid of them. They would see them coming. And would try to avoid them, you know, obviously, as one would. And so you have, um, you know, someone who sees this boat coming upriver, and because you don't want to deal with all that jazz, you flee into the forest. And perhaps not very used to like butchering chimps. um, The person venturing off maybe gets cut in the process. while trying to, you know, get food, that's what bushmeat hunting is for, you know, him, himself and his family. But if you're, you know, in new areas, if you're, you know, really not a, a well-seasoned bushmeat hunter, but you kind of get forced into this because you have to flee from the rubber people, um, you know, you, you have this kind of risk of having a really sloppy kind of, uh, hunting operation and so if you're bleeding if the if the chimp is bleeding then that's how you get the close contact and you know that's how the virus may have entered into uh someone like this so imagine then this mm-hmm. uh newly infected person will uh, ventures into another village he gets caught by a press gang getting workers from uh for the railroad so uh again an you know, another instance of forced labor. He gets taken down the hundreds of kilometers to arrive exhausted, hungry, and at this point, uh, he would be uh, receiving this whole, like, kind of series of injections along with everyone else in his group, and this was using unsterilized syringes. And so you basically have, um, you know, people recruiting uh, or forcing, you know, the locals to take part in this railroad construction project, which, you know, is, is something that's really changed Africa. And we'll talk about the role that it has played in a second, but, you know, they want to, you know, make sure that this, this crew that they're building is, is, you know, well enough to, to work and to put in the railroad, so they'll give them these injections with um, you know various vaccine type things, but they did it in such a way that we would you know scream risk factor at this point, unsterilized syringes, um, and so you can imagine that uh, you have this guy who's newly infected with HIV who's been pressed into service, working the railroads, um, and. Because of the group he's in, he gets his blood, uh, You know, he gets blood in the needle, it's unsterilized. The same needle gets shared amongst probably hundreds of people. And because syringes were pretty expensive back then, um, they were handmade. In one campaign, there was an example of French doctors using six syringes to inject 80,000 African workers with a medicine for sleeping sickness. And that's
1: outside of how disgusting that is. Can you imagine being like the you know 80th thousandth person stabbed with that last needle? How uh, dull and miserable that must have been, too. Like, not not only is it unsterile, yeah, at that point, they're just, yeah, there's just no way they're just like taking chunks out of people. And uh,
0: yeah, not not great, but they you know, they were doing this to you know, try to keep their their crew healthy and you know sleeping sickness for example um but little did they know they were actually you know contributing to the um spread of this virus so there were lots of opportunities at the time for passing blood from one person to another person um and this uh this started kind of happening all over the place so imagine the railroad the railroad worker Uh, Or someone who got HIV from his blood, uh, you know, would be worked to the point of starving, being overworked. Uh, You know, they're going to work these people down to, you know, to the ground. Um, His immunity would be low as a result. So these uh, workers who are working the railroads, you know, are, are starved, they're overworked. And as a result... When you're overworked and you're starving, your immune system suffers and would be low. So what does one do when you are spending all day working the railroads, you're starving and overworked? Uh, well, um, one might visit the camp uh, sex worker or prostitute and this created a stew of risk factors ideal for spreading the virus. And what a do? In this scenario, that first HIV-infected man will eventually get sick and eventually dies of what we would now call AIDS, but having had the virus long enough so that it could adapt and be transmitted to other humans and maybe dozens of others. So this is this is just kind of a, a scenario that, that could have played out um, at the time, based on just how the African continent was being colonized and and exploited. But back to Kinshasa, where we're kind of at ground zero, Uh, at the time, Kinshasa was a thriving city. It had multiple transport links and an influx of male laborers that ended up making a perfect incubator for the pandemic strain of HIV. When the virus Uh, arrived in Kinshasa the city was quite bustling as it's been described it was the largest and fastest growing city in the region and it had these kind of transportation networks and links that reached up and down the country the uh, busy Congo River curved north and east uh, and to uh, you know upwards of 600 miles away the railroad carried tons of workers and uh, you know all the migrant and immigrant labor, you know, caused a lot of people to be, you know, moving, and that is something that benefits an infectious disease is you know human movement transportation. So yeah, the the research into this shows that by the nineteen forties, more than a million people are thought to have passed through Kinshasa on the rail railways alone. So, you know, it's a bustling port, and lots of people are coming in and out. Uh, So part of, you know, this is a big piece of that stew, that perfect soup uh, or storm. So uh, boats, trains, they're able to spread the virus far, uh, but other factors played an important part as well. Uh, Records from the time suggest that Kinshasa had a relatively high proportion of men because of, you know, all the the labor that was required. And as Mm -hmm. a consequence, um, and this is just part of the human condition, I suppose, the demand for sex workers went through the roof. Yeah. You know, got to blow off steam. Some doctors may have also unwittingly spread the virus further through these unsterilized um, injections at sexual health clinics. And this uh, kind of incubator for the pandemic where you have, um, you know, the result of colonialism being this kind of large immigrant labor population arriving at this location that was at the time very connected to other parts of of West Africa and the African continent. And you have... um, you know, the virus arriving at the same time. And you have all of these workers basically, you know, doing the exact risk factors that we know increases your risk of infection. So there's, there's you know, sex work. There's um, these, like, health clinics using these janky needles. And uh, all the while, this virus is kind of lurking under the under the radar spreading around and that's one of the reasons why it's been so successful is it doesn't you know kill you right away it doesn't make you sick even right away there's a period where yeah it's a slow slow burn you know doing its thing in your body but you're fine and so you're going around you know uh frequenting the sex workers doing your thing and spreading it all the while yeah so terrifying uh kinshasa's still at this point, a very fast growing area. And it starts to grow even faster after it gains independence in 1960s. By then there was the invention of um, cheap, like, cheap uh, syringes. They became plastic and were put into wide use. But again, they usually weren't sterilized. And so the spread of these bloodborne viruses um, you know, were completed even more efficiently. And the analysis that I read showed a dynamic pattern of HIV1 movement in the DRC, dominated initially by this kind of dispersal of the virus away from Kinshasa towards other population centers. And if you look at historical transportation data from the DRC at the time, Uh, during the 1900 through 1960 time period. Uh, This suggests that the viral lineage in migrant populations living in and around Kinshasa would have had many opportunities for introduction to DRC regions connected to other population centers in Central Africa. And uh, further genetic analysis has indicated that the virus reached the southern DRC locations of, all right, I'm going to try here, Lubumbashi and Muji Maya. Yeah,
1: I was was gonna say "Mm, Muji Maya or Mai or Bujimai.
0: Awesome, yeah. What what, Mm -hmm. we're crushing, what, what Andy said. Um, and so, uh, this evidence shows that the virus reached these places by the 1937 1939 time window. It took another decade before the pandemic HIV 1 strain seeded uh, central and northern DRC locations, ultimately, um, kind of reaching Guamanda. Uh, yeah, by 1946. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, you have this kind of perfect storm of risk factors in Kinshasa. Uh, it's growing, and the kind of interconnections that are developing throughout the region, and the transportation networks that are being built, uh, are you know allowing people to travel further, faster. Um, you know, there's also logging, there's deforestation, uh, and when you have logging, you have you know these roads that are built, logging roads, and this also allows people to, uh, you know, travel deeper into forested areas. It allows bushmeat hunters to um, use the roads to travel further into the forest. And this exposes them to these kind of new reservoirs of, of virus as well. So the um, group the kind of subgroup HIV strain that again has caused the uh, bulk of the damage globally is is called group m and it arrives at these large population centers that were well connected to kinshasa and again this supports the critical role that mobility networks played in the early spread and establishment of hiv1 within the drc the majority of these kind of journeys between these locations took place along the railway railway network and it's estimated that these uh, railways were used by like 300,000 passengers per year in 1922, and that this peaked at 1 million annual passengers in 1948. So we have like large-scale human movements between these these rapidly growing urban centers. Um, Mm -hmm. We also have diamond extraction. We have uh, mining cities that also begin to get connected with the railway network. and then you know, that brings its own new influx of workers. Um, assuming that they're largely men. This also brings the sex workers, and anything that the men are catching are you know, can be transported through the, the railway network. So by the mid1980s, Approxim- approximately half of all the dispersal events were seeded from secondary locations outside of Kinshasa, meaning that they had established this geographically heterogeneous distribution of HIV subtypes across uh, both eastern and southern Africa. So it's, it's no longer kind of radiating from the epicenter. It's uh, seeded new, like, um, secondary epicenters. And now mm-hmm. I would say the, like the horse has left the barn, uh, the, the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, you can't put smoke or it's hard to, what is it? Um, smoke back in a oh, jar yeah. or something. Can't, yeah. It, I never got uh, that one. That was a but, weird one. uh, uh <laughs> um, but one thing the astute listener might be wondering, uh, we've talked about bushmeat hunting. I think, probably many times before in other episodes, which you should yeah. definitely go check out, especially the Ebola one, because we we talk about deforestation and stuff like this. But what we know is that humans have been hunting chimps for eons, long time. Mm-hmm. There've been a lot of chances historically for hunters to become infected with the uh, chimp version of HIV through like a bite or a cut during the bushmeat hunting process. Uh, so why didn't one of these infections start a pandemic? Some people blame Africa or the behavior of Africans, and we see this, you know, manifesting with the conspiracy theories that, that Andy was talking about. Um, but it's way too simplistic to to have that kind of um, perception. Every scenario for the origin of HIV uh, has it taking place during that period of colonial rule in Africa and taking place as a result of colonial practices. So how I kind of interpret that is, there may have been like small crossover events, like little, um, uh, they call it viral chatter, basically when like uh, zoonotic diseases are kind of going from animal to human populations, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, And probably because, Before all this rapid development, you know, cities and villages were, you know, separated and it was harder to get from one to the other. And so if there was like an infection event, it just would fizzle out and not, you know, break out of its cage until this kind of colonial soup of, you know, risk factors comes together and allows it to, you know, break free and into the wider world and, you know. Go back and listen to our Ebola episode. Very similar situation, um, and it's this kind of thing that you know has contributed to a lot of the emerging diseases we see. And uh, we've also talked yeah. about COVID quite a bit. Not the exact same mm-hmm. uh, pathway, but uh, as a result of kind of humans um, mucking up the environment and like a mix of social, mm-hmm. and environmental factors coming together definitely so uh this is just kind of like an interesting like kind of side story and really it's it's a it's a reason for me to like talk about the um former dictator of Uganda Idi Amin and this has to do with the hypothesis that the emergence of HIV um occurred as what is called the truck town hypothesis so to set the stage Uh, It's 1971 in Uganda. Uh, Some believe HIV had, you know, the origins had more to do with Uganda. um, And that's part of this truck town hypothesis. So uh, in 1971, this rather, um, I I guess, eccentric fellow, Idi Amin, uh, began what was considered by many a reign of terror that lasted about eight years. Um, His actions effectively destroyed Uganda. Uh, He contributed to the destruction of the economy by allowing Kenyan trucks to use Ugandan roads. The truck traffic increased dramatically as a result, destroying the Ugandan infrastructure. Um, And the secondary effects was that this set up a corridor of smuggling and established Kampala which is the capital of Uganda, as like this illegal trade center um, kind of hotspot. So this seems to account for the spread of newly amplified AIDS epidemic out from the urban Kampala area. And it appears that uh, this kind of quote unquote truck town hypothesis accounts for much of the spread of the virus during the tumultuous reign of Idi Amin during the 1970s. So I think you know, it lines up that the virus is is kind of busted out of um, Kinshasa. It's spread to these secondary kind of hotspots. And by the 1970s, it's spreading throughout Uganda, right at a time when Uganda is basically being destroyed by this kind of, he's basically an insane man, uh, ruling the the country. And um, that, is what I think um, led people to believe that this um, kind of uh, network of trucks from Kenya that were set up by Idi Amin uh, was responsible for a lot of this. Um, as Amin destroyed the economy and opened up the Ugandan roads to international trucking, again, the role of you know transportation networks here, There began this boom (laughs) of illegal trading, smuggling of goods across the country. Uh, Typically, there would be heavy traffic moving out from Kampala along these main corridors towards other countries. As trucking spread out along the roads through towns, again, so too did commercial sex work. So you have these newly developing major, like, trucking corridors um, connecting regions in Africa. And the truck drivers are, you know, mostly men. And again, uh, the commercial sex working industry sets up shop along the trucking routes. So uh, HIV infected truck drivers would pass along these roads. Uh, They would infect the commercial sex workers, who would then in turn infect others. And this would provide further transmission to truck drivers, and the train of transmission would continue. Um, As uh, another aside, and really this is why I wanted to bring up the kind of Uganda side story, is Idi Amin, uh, his insanity can kind of be summed up in the nicknames that others have given him and that he's given himself. Um, The... Uh, Nicknames that he developed include, quote, Big Daddy, which was his infectionate nickname. Uh, Another one that is um, meaning that means the machete. And this is attributed to the Ugandan security forces that would murder their victims with machetes. He was also known as the Butcher of Uganda, the Butcher of Africa, the Butcher of Kampala, Black Hitler. And uh, (laughs) oh, Yeah, and Doctor Jaffa, which was earned. Okay, <laughs> this was earned. This uh, is pretty spicy. While he was in exile in Saudi Arabia, because he basically was known for eating tons and tons of oranges every day. Uh, scurvy. He wanted to watch out for scurvy. Yeah. But this is this is the coup de gras. This is uh, his self-bestowed title, and this is real. This was his official title. What people were required to refer to him as in official, you know, events? Quote: Idi Amin was His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal, All Haji, Doctor Idi Amin Dada, B.C. D.S.O. M.C. C.B.E., Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea, and Conqueror of the British Empire in Africa, in general. And Uganda, in particular. <laughs> that. <laughs> That's the, the ending. Like, honestly, the beginning is
1: pretty ridiculous. Uh, but when it, it gets ridiculous, is really the in general and in particular. <laughs> like, those two parts are the most absurd part
0: of it. The rest is very boastful. The other is uber-specific. I'm fond of the lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea. Just like the megalomania of this guy um i mean that we got to like look into maybe for a side episode like what kind of disease disease riddled like kind of guy this was um but he was also um unofficially crowned the uh king of scotland he had like this weird obsession with scotland um and that's what the movie is based on, The Last King of um, Scotland. Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, what we've kind of found so far is that, just to kind of recap, the uh, the perfect storm of colonialism and urbanization and the growth of these transportation networks in Kinshasa uh, corresponded to the spillover event where um, HIV made it into human populations from probably like bushmeat hunting. And it starts to spread to other networks throughout Africa. And that, you know, these kinds of um, social events, such as the Uganda story we just told, you know, help kind of shape the transmission. And... The kind of commercial logging and the railroads and then the sex working industry that develops around it, you know, helps to kind of solidify the spread. And this is still kind of happening. Um, I found a 2004 study called Commercial Logging and HIV Epidemic in Rural Equatorial Africa. So this, you know, really, for me, it kind of confirms uh, this this chain of this chain of transmission. Uh, we know that travel has been linked to an increased risk among rural populations. And recent environmental changes that have been caused by commercial logging in equatorial Africa uh, could potentially facilitate HIV dissemination currently. Uh, commercial logging has led to again road construction in remote forested areas, human migration, mostly of single men and the development of social and economic networks, including commercial sex work, that support this industry. In Cameroon, commercial logging has been growing for at least four decades. Researchers have previously shown that these environmental changes might represent a risk to human health through exposure to simian immunodeficiency viruses. So it's this kind of um, human-altered environmental changes that put people at uh, increased risk of exposure to the SIV um, virus that, you know, is thought to have sparked this back in the 1920s. So researchers investigated the seroprevalence of HIV in this community, the nature of circulating HIV genetic variants, and other factors associated with infection in a logging area of Southern Cameroon. They did a survey in 2001, In this remote village where sawmill and logging camps had been located since the 70s. And um, ultimately, in three villages, they uh, estimated this kind of increase in commercial logging, which began. And it's thought at the time uh, there were like a thousand inhabitants in these like logging camps at the time of the survey. Um, So you have these like kind of remote outposts. Of of logging camps, approximately 200 workers were employed in this industry at the time uh, in this village. Approximately half originated from the region, meaning that the other half are you know migrants from other countries. Some workers lived in traditional like the neighborhoods, but most of these people lived in logging camps. These researchers identified this uh, population. Uh, within this group, that was the highest seroprevalence for HIV infection. So, which you know, what group in this in these logging camps um, were you know most infected with HIV? And they found that uh, about 25% of women aged 25 to 34 were infected, and this was the group that was um, most infected, which I think surprised the researchers. Um seems kind of surprising to me. But it actually makes sense mm-hmm. if you think about the uh you know high seroprevalence prevalence rate in women of this age bracket. Uh they're living in this rural area that could be related to commercial logging. And in a context in which workers had relatively high salaries, uh, so that would be considered US sixty dollars to up to $530 per month. Uh, Sexual networks were, as a result, extensive and quite complex. And an estimated 40 female sex workers were permanently living in the logging camp at the time of the survey. In addition, about 100 women arrived at the logging camp from towns or neighboring villages at the time of salary distribution, payday, twice a month to trade or offer paid sex. and just in case you're curious, that would be one fifty a pop, uh, one dollar and fifty cents. Wow, a pop—that's the going rate. Crazy, adjusted for inflation, I don't know, but that seems a little low. Uh, so you have, you know, a payday. Uh, the sex workers will kind of surge and uh, all kind of flock to the to the village when they know it's payday cuz that's when they know that the men can uh you know do their sex work thing so mm-hmm. you know this results in some men and women having sex with several partners a night um some workers you know wives also had extramarital sex so you have uh you know again just this perfect soup of um you know risk factors for the HIV virus to spread around so this is an example of, like, even now, the same kind of mechanism as is at, is at work, as it was, you know, all that time ago when it's it's thought to have yeah. just occurred. So an interesting tale Crazy. of environmental change, human behavior, uh, colonialism in Africa, all kind of coalescing to, you know, produce this pandemic, which is, you know, Way more complicated, and I think interesting, you know, than like the government made it in a lab, and like, you know, mm-hmm. wanted to spread it to like, I don't know, because they were mad at certain groups of people. Um, the reality is yeah. more complicated and more interesting, similar to a one COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. But that's um, that's what we know about the origin of HIV.
1: Yeah. I uh I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I think uh my hair was definitely blown back when we uh were discussing and I was reading a little bit about like the 1920s and 1940s connection because mm-hmm. you just never would have thought. Um but then as you put all the puzzle pieces together and again colonialism, all the logging roads, uh deforestation, all of that stuff like it is this like you know alphabet soup of problems with mm-hmm. You know, all, all of the issues, this perfect storm where it all comes together. So um, pretty interesting, pretty tragic at the same time. Uh, it is nice to see that we have things like, you know, the, the different medicines that you can use right now. Um, you know, the prep uh, medications that people can take to keep themselves safe as well, um, you know, if they so choose. So and those are becoming, uh, I think like we're really moving in the right good. direction
0: I mean, to the point where yeah. people with HIV can get their viral load. See how I did that? Viral mm-hmm. load? Yeah, uh, I saw it. Down to a, to like a, a number that is like undetectable by
1: undetectable, yeah.
0: Um so people exactly. still can't, I think, technically be cured. I mean there's some like random stories sometimes in the news that you know people are cured, but it just It went into remission. Yeah, their, their viral load is um, so low yeah. that there's the virus is still in there, you know, hidden in a reservoir somewhere yeah. in the body. Um but you know, whether a cure is possible, I don't know. Um, It's a tricky virus. It mutates. Um, But I think ultimately, this should add more evidence as like a cautionary tale that, you know, this kind of social and and environmental uh, kind of collection of risk factors is what drives these pandemics. Um, We see it with Ebola. We saw it with COVID. Uh, There are many other examples and so using this information to you know try to prevent the next one and that's why like all these conspiracy theories are so damaging is because people are focusing on like all that nonsense rather than yep the fantastical to the root of the actual problem um but in some ways it's understandable because the the reality is very complicated and requires a lot of advanced science uh it's just easier and I think more satisfying for people to just like blame the government or whatever.
1: Definitely. Um, so uh, as usual, I've learned a lot. We hope you have as well. If you like what you heard, please head over to wherever you get your podcasts and, and give us a like, subscribe, uh, share with your friends. Um, give us a five star review if you if you feel so inclined. Uh, check out our social medias uh, at Viral Load on everything. And if you have an idea for an episode, head over to uh, your email and send it over to viralloadpod at gmail.com. Um, but this has been fantastic. Uh, we are back uh, on schedule and uh, we'll see you again uh, in a couple of weeks. So, as always, I've been Annie Pupa. I'm Brett Bales. And this was informative.
0: Ooh, that was good.